This is History West Midlands. In 1918, amidst the turmoil of the First World War, a new deadly threat swept through Europe and beyond. The influenza pandemic, popularly known as Spanish flu, infected an estimated 500 million people worldwide and killed tens of millions over the next two years. Birmingham was hit by three separate waves of the disease causing mass disruption to populations still reeling from the impact of war. Justine Pick from the University of Birmingham has investigated the records of how Spanish flu affected the people of the city, and she talked to History West Midlands publisher Mike Gibbs. The Spanish flu pandemic between 1918 and 1920 is estimated to have killed somewhere around 50 million people worldwide and 228,000 people in Britain. But surprisingly little has been reported on its effects on Birmingham. Recently, Justine Pick, a researcher from the University of Birmingham, has explored local newspapers and other sources for us. Justine, when was the Spanish flu pandemic first reported in Birmingham? And do we know how many people were affected? The influenza pandemic is considered to have struck in three waves. As Maggie Andrews and Emma Edwards point out in their book, Bovril Whiskey and Gravediggers, looking at Spanish flu in the West Midlands, Birmingham was one of the first cities to experience a sudden rise in deaths from influenza. The first wave reached Birmingham between June and July 1918, while the First World War was still raging. The second happens in November and December 1918, and the third wave comes in the following year, between February and March. We know statistics for deaths from the medical officer reports, and they estimated that for those three waves, at least 3,800 people died. To put that into context, the average annual deaths from flu in Birmingham between 1913 and 17 was about 129. So you can see that the death rate was considerably more. There had been previous pandemics. The one before was the Russian flu in 1890-91, but the death total there was considered to be about just over 400. You can't be absolutely precise, though. One, we don't know how many people actually caught flu because... It wasn't a notifiable disease. People did catch it and they survived and recovered. We don't know the total number of people that actually contracted the virus. And we also have to be a little bit careful with the death figures as well. Sometimes the death figures may have missed some. Deaths could be recorded as pneumonia or bronchitis. And in fact, the Birmingham Medical Officer for Health actually adds another 500 on that he suspects may have been actually caused by flu, but they might have been recorded as pneumonia or bronchitis. So he does this retrospectively. So basically, in his opinion, he considers that almost 4,300 people died in the pandemic in Birmingham. Um, was it universal across Birmingham and across the whole population? All wards in Birmingham recorded deaths, but obviously some more than others. And I think it went depending on the density of the population in those wards. 
Uh, newspaper reports seems to have highlighted Selly Oak and Kings Norton as badly hit areas, but that doesn't quite correspond with the Medical Officer for Health statistics. Selly Oak, yes, appears to have been hit quite badly, but the greatest death rates were seen in Small Heath and Borsal Heath, and particularly more the central wards of the city, which was the more densely populated areas. The lowest death rates were recorded in Erdington and Kings Heath. And was it men and women, children as well? Yes, it did affect all age groups, but they did change in the second wave and there were specifics that affected young, healthy adults. Usually influenza was dangerous for the very young and the very old, but in this pandemic, that age range, sort of 25 to 45, was particularly hit. So, as I said, healthy young adults, and that was where the greatest proportion of deaths were in that second wave in November and December. That's not to say that children weren't affected. The statistics tell us that almost 500 children died. These were children under the age of 15. But proportionately, it was the 25 to 45 age group. And you mentioned the Medical Officer of Health. How did the authorities in Birmingham react to this pandemic? I think nationally, the whole country was quite slow to act on the first wave. We were in the midst of war. The country was operating for war. So it didn't really do too much at first. Everything was about the war effort and making sure that supplies and everything reached the front. We were also, the country was starting to suffer food shortages then. So there was a very much drive to increase food production and everything else. So attention was perhaps diverted towards the war. And as I said, a lot of people were affected, but the death rate wasn't as great as it was to come later on in the November and the December. When the second wave hits and is far more deadly, then obviously panic starts to increase in the public. And this is where we're starting to see more stringent measures take place. Newspapers reports in Birmingham in October 1918 report only a slight epidemic. However, just a few weeks later, with the rising death toll, there was public panic. Then we start to see orders for cinemas and all public entertainment places, very stringent, not necessarily blanket closures, but they had rules about periods between performances so that places could be ventilated and made clean. There were strict rules on soldiers and medical staff attending public venues. Soldiers were even turned away from St Andrew's football matches. And particularly, this is very much in the nature of childhood diseases. The main focus seemed to be primarily on schools, particularly elementary schools. It was very common to, as soon as the cases were reported, schools would be closed until it calmed down and then they'd be allowed to do it. And this is very typical of what they did. And they start to close schools in Birmingham. Unfortunately, I think they allowed them back too quickly because they start to send them back. And then a few weeks later, you have reports that there is at least 60 schools closed in Birmingham. But as I say, I haven't come across where they just did whole blanket closures because they were, you know, very much concentrated on the elementary and later some of the older children in schools. And as you said earlier, the war was still going on. So doctors, nurses, many men particularly were at the front. How did that affect hospitals and other services that were available and needed during this pandemic? Well, as you 
quite rightly say, many medical trained staff were still part of the war effort. We have to remember that in November 1918 was the armistice. So not everybody had come home. It takes quite a while for everybody to return from the war. So there were shortages of staff, coupled with the fact that the staff they did have were falling ill to the pandemic themselves. So this compounded the situation. There are reports of Miss Bodley, the matron of Selly Oak Infirmary, making urgent appeals in the newspaper for women volunteers as a third of her nursing staff were down with flu. By the height of the second wave, this is the more deadly strain, Birmingham wrote to the war office appealing for doctors to be released and nurses to sent back home to Birmingham. And there was bans in hospitals for visitors. And that didn't really finish until just before Christmas 1918 that visitors were allowed again into the hospitals. But remember, in many cases, people didn't even make it to hospital and they died in their homes. And there were even shortages of grave diggers. Again, the impact of war. Many men were away. It was reported that Birmingham had nearly 200 employees in the undertaking trade. At this point, when the pandemic is raging, there's about just under 90 there. So there's this great shortage of grave diggers and actual undertakers. You also have lost horses. They've been taken away for war. So there's a real shortage of being able to transport as well. So coffin makers, every aspect of the undertaking trade is affected. You have to remember that in a few short weeks, the death rate increased incredibly. They could not cope with the number of dead that needed burying and services that needed performing. So what happened? They have to make some changes. They have to change administration so that you only had to have two days to report a death and to be able to bury. I think they had to make logistical changes there. They appealed for other trades if they could help to use the horse and carts so that they could transport. There were cases where people are buried together. Obviously, the coffins were not necessarily finished in the way that they would have been previously. I mean, there was a report that Birmingham sent a lot of coffins somewhere else originally when it didn't think that the epidemic was going to be so severe and then struggled itself to have enough coffins ready in time. So... The effect on the way of death was obviously dramatic. What about daily life, particularly in the factories? Life was affected in various ways. In the first wave, with the huge numbers that were infected, the services were affected with large numbers of staff off sick. This would have been public transport, police, council services, but don't forget there was all the munitions factories and there was large numbers sick there, so it was affecting the war effort. Schools were closed if children contracted the illness, and so obviously they were at home as well. People were advised not to visit large assemblies of people, so this would have been music halls, uh, theatres, any sort of particular entertainment shows. As I said earlier, by the second wave, there was the influenza order, which affected places, so there were restrictions on length of performances, and many of the cinemas particularly if it was by a school that had been closed, were ordered not to admit schoolchildren. However, some of these rules weren't enforced to the 25th of November. So this is right in the midst of the pandemic, probably a little bit too late. And for families and individuals, there must have been panic, particularly just at a time when the First World War is ending. 
and soldiers are being discharged and returning home from the front. Yes, I think the panic really sets in in the second wave due to the nature of it, the alarming speed of death in healthy young adults. But everybody was affected in different ways. It was not just returning soldiers. You have to remember people were still joining or still being conscripted into the forces. And Mr George Shaw of Borsal Heath joined the RAF as a mechanic. He was 48 years old and he already had two sons serving. But three weeks in, he contracted flu and he died. In other cases, you've got soldiers who had served the entire war, managed to survive the trenches, only to come home and die of influenza, which is too cruel. Vice versa, there were soldiers at the front also hearing of the pandemic at home, writing home and asking their wives to be careful because they've heard it's very bad and obviously they're worried. And there were soldiers that came home tragically to find that members of their family and their loved ones had died. And I guess one of the groups that must have really suffered at this time were war widows. What was their story? Yeah, women were significantly affected during the pandemic. In the 1918 waves that hit Birmingham, 55% of the deaths were female and significantly most were listed as housewives or having no occupation. Primarily this is probably because there were so many men away at the front, but also because housewives, well, they were the carers and mothers and exposed, particularly looking after the others who were sick and performing other duties that they would have to do being a housewife. However, if they lost their husband and became a war widow, then obviously there was much greater hardship to come, particularly for the poorest in society. Any assistance, and there were war pensions, but it was to a strict criteria. War widows might have received a war pension, but they couldn't claim the extra expenses of burying their children who died in the pandemic. Who was going to pay for that? Discharged soldiers with injuries who later died could claim something towards their funeral expenses and there was a Birmingham Citizens Committee which screened these applications and said yes or no. But then if his dependents or his widow died, who would then pay their funeral costs? So many faced a pauper's funeral. And how did people try to treat themselves? Official advice entered on a few courses of preventative action, mostly centred around ventilation, so keeping windows open at night and all means of ventilation being open on public transport, and also advised to have a good diet. However, this was at a time of national food shortages and they were introducing rationing. And always, for the poorest, a good wholesome diet was always difficult. There were always home remedies and alcoholic spirits like whiskey and brandy were advocated as a useful tonic to help fight off the flu and prevent any complications. It's not new advice. It was already a well-established home remedy. However, there were also, because of the war, restrictions on alcohol. So this caused difficulty and supplies were soon running out because everybody was wanting to purchase these spirits to stave off the flu. And of course, it wasn't there. There were also the druggists and chemists who would sell all sorts of tonics and home remedies. Looking at advertisements from the period shows how some seize the opportunity to promote their products to be useful in the fight against flu. The most popular disinfectants, such as Sanitas, even went so far to say there was a shortage of bottles, so buy a bigger one, buy the larger gallon jar so that you'd be prepared. Across the Birmingham Gazette was a header... Brand's essence of beef conquers influenza. 
And then there was Vitafer, which was the all-British tonic food, so patriotism with the war, but claims that it helped convalesce after influenza. Medically, it was thought to be caused by a bacteria, which obviously we now know that's not the case. And there were attempts to create vaccines in America and here, continuing on work that had started after the Russian flu pandemic. And there were already vaccines for other diseases at that stage. And Birmingham was one of the first places, I believe, in Britain to try a programme of vaccination. I don't know if we can say it's the first. I think it was going on in other places at the time. It's quite mixed. Local newspaper reports in the November 1918 report that vaccines were being made in Birmingham, but that there wouldn't be enough for everyone. And so they were going to choose doctors and inmates of public school. So reading to that what you will, sort of a class situation there. At the end of November, it also states that the local government board had a vaccine and that Birmingham's medical officer for health had applied for some. However, the trail runs cold then and you don't really see any advertisements of any sort of major campaign or programme of vaccination. So you don't really know where this goes. However, there is some reference in a source at the Bluecoat School. So this was on Temple Row. And it's a bit later in 1919, and there's a reference there by the medical officer for that school where he notes that October 1919, so this is really after the three waves, all pupils have been vaccinated. But he doesn't say where it comes from, who organised it, was it a private arrangement, is it something? So there's tantalising evidence there that something happened, but we don't quite know everything yet. And by mid-1919, I think it's generally agreed that the pandemic has finished, has passed. But Birmingham, there's some suggestions that it was different. So in Europe, it's generally considered to have ended by May 1919, after the third wave. But there are reports in 1920, and the Birmingham Medical Officer for Health annual report for that year states that he considered a further 400 deaths were caused by influenza. So whether he sees that the bronchitis and pneumonia deaths, he considers that they were part of another wave of influenza. But I don't think this sort of pans out nationally in that sense. The Spanish flu pandemic was, by any stretch of the imagination, a major historical occurrence. Yet it seems to have generally disappeared from the record or from the consciousness. Why do you think that is? I think it's just completely entwined with the First World War. You have to remember it started while the war was still taking place and it's still going on. Even though we've had the armistice, soldiers had not returned. It took a long time for everything to get back to normal, whatever normal could be after such an event. And I think it becomes in the consciousness with everybody part of that period of war, almost to the extent that somebody may say their relative died in the Spanish flu in the Great War. They become so linked together and they become part of consciousness as one one terrible event. Justine, thank you for reminding us of a really important time in the history of Birmingham. Thank you. You can find more podcasts and films about the Spanish flu pandemic by visiting our website, www.historywm.com. The book, Bovril, Whiskey and Gravediggers, 
The Spanish Flu Pandemic Comes to the West Midlands by Professor Maggie Andrews and Emma Edwards is available in bookshops and from Amazon. <laughs>